0: Welcome to Ars Technica Live. Every month, we bring you an informal conversation with a thinker from the frontier of technology, science, and culture. We record each episode before a live audience. There's only one rule no sound bites. I'm Anna Lee Newitz. I'm the tech culture editor at Ars Technica, and this event is Ars Technica Live. And tonight, our guest is Lynn Ingram, who is a professor in the Earth and Planetary Sciences Department at Berkeley. And I've been interested in her work for a long time because she studies something called paleoclimatology, which is super awesome, obviously. But also, it's the hi- sort of looking at the deep history of climate and environment in specific areas. And she looks at California, and that's what we're going to be talking about here tonight. So, um, thanks very much for joining
1: us. Oh, thank you for inviting me.
0: <laughs> and also, by the way, she's the author of The West Without Water. So, I wanted to start by asking you about the present, even though I know you look a lot at history. So, in California right now, we are ha- first we are having a drought... And then we've been having floods this year. The weather has gotten really extreme. Is this normal for California? Are we seeing something unprecedented here? What's going on?
1: Well, I mean, if you look at the long-term climate history, California is extremely, does have extremely variable climate. So it's a little hard to tell, you know, is this normal or not? Because California has the most variable climate or weather of all the, the 50 states. I mean, if we go from extreme drought to, to wet years, then that's, that's just a normal phenomenon. But what climate scientists, I mean, I'm a paleoclimatologist, but um, I have colleagues who are climatologists, are seeing is that, you know, we do have these sort of fluctuations on different time scales. So there's a 200-year cycle, there's decadal cycles, and there's cycles c- coming from El Niño, La Niña cycles, but what we're seeing is more of a trend that's been happening in the past few couple of decades of um, warmer springs, you know, spring coming earlier, war- um, earlier snow melt, uh, increased wildfires um, and warming. And so, really the thought is that because we, since the 1980s, we've uh, had about a couple of degree warming in California, that that is affecting, we're having more evaporation and it's getting more just drier just from the fact that, th- that it's warmer. And that's projected to increase in the future if things don't change and if the climate keeps warming. So now let's go back in time. Um, okay. I
0: know that we've had really dramatic droughts before in this area, and in uh, but thousands of years ago, right, or, or centuries ago, right, or so and thousands of years ago, right, and millions of years time. ago, <laughs> yeah. But. but there was one specific example about that was a few hundred years ago, right? The medieval drought. Right. So tell right. us about the yeah. medieval drought.
1: Okay. Yeah, and I sh- also should mention. There was another drought about 5,000 years ago that was really severe as well. But then, about 1,100 to 700 years ago, there was is a warmer period globally called the Medieval Warm Period. And in California, what we mainly saw was that it got very dry. California in the Southwest, you know, very dry, um, maybe 30 to 40 percent decrease precipitation, mm-hmm. and uh, you know lakes dried up, you have evidence of it, it affecting human populations at that time, and increase in wildfires. So they've looked at, in the Sierra Nevada, you can look at the giant sequoia, and they actually can see these fire scars. They can look at the frequency of the fire scars over time and see that it, there were about 30% increased wildfire throughout the Sierra, Sierra Nevada. Uh, during that time and
0: so how do you as a scientist find out about that like what techniques do you use to go back in time and say oh yeah we know there was a a drought here 800 years ago
1: right so there's several different and what we like to do is uh, we all have a different aspect of the climate that we look at or the geologic record so uh, some people found it looking at tree rings you can actually see it in the width of the tree ring will get narrower the trees grow, have a decreased growth during those dry conditions. So if you see and just a
0: really narrow like, yeah, or a band between narrow, the tree rings, you can exactly. say drought. Okay,
1: Yeah, just a decreased growth of trees. And then uh, there's evidence for the, the lake level. So you can see things like the ancient shorelines. And uh, you can also see some of the evidence came from submerged tree stumps, so today in Mono Lake and Lake Tahoe and places like that, there's, you actually see these tree stumps that are out in the middle of the lake. And if you, take the, if you sample those trees and date them with radiocarbon, a lot of those dates were coming out to this medieval warm period, meaning that that lake had shrunk enough that those trees were able to grow and become established, and some of those trees were 100 years old meaning the drought had lasted, you know, a century. And so some of those trees, especially Lake Tahoe, also came out 5,000 years ago. So there was another big drought um, that we know of that was 5,000 years ago as well. So So if we know that there
0: have been these previous periods of drought in California, what's different about what we're experiencing now? How do we know that this is climate change that humans
1: are helping along? What are some of the signs? Well, for one thing, I mean, we could actually be naturally heading back into a drier cycle because the 20th century was relatively wet. And, you know, so there's some chance that we could be going into a, you know, uh, we see this 200 year cycle and of kind of wet and dry. And so we could be doing that anyway. In terms of the human impact, you know, we kind of see, we, we just correlate the fact that we have, during over the time that we've had increased CO2 and increased warming, we've been having uh, evidence for drying in California and the, the wildfires and so on. So I think it's more just kind of lining up all the evidence and the trends. And, and we know that increased CO2, you know, with via the greenhouse gas is going to increase warming. And that's... We know that humans have been doing that. So you know whether or not there's a natural cycle, we're going to be superimposing a human imprint on this as well. And
0: um, what do we, I mean, what's interesting to me is that even though humans may be contributing to this particular drought, we have all this fossil evidence from previous droughts, and we kind of know what happened to the ecosystems a little bit during those droughts. Or I guess my question is, do we know what happened? Like, what what happens when you have one of these century-long droughts like we saw during the medieval period? What happens to the ecosystems? What happens to California?
1: Right. Well, I mean, there's definitely evidence that the, you know, so like I said, there were increased wildfires, and I think it really did affect the vegetation and the probably then cascading effects into the, you know, everything that ate the plants and animals, you know, the, the plants, meaning the animals and the humans because there's a, bit, a lot of the archaeological deposits show that there were abandonments during that time, so it looks like people started aban- or having to move over larger regions to find resources. You know, so they and there was also increased violence. So we have uh, skeletal evidence. Showing increased human, you know, violence and malnutrition and things like that, increased diseases. So this is the, you know, the, not my research, but the archaeological research. And then we've looked at cores from San Francisco Bay mm-hmm. and seen shifts in the types of organisms. So we see during a drought, there's less river flow coming in from the big watershed that go, drains through San Francisco Bay. It covers 40 percent of California. And so when you have a drought, the bay gets saltier. And so you, we see that the, the types of organisms are shifting to organisms that, can, uh, that are adapted to saltier conditions. And we see the same thing in the marshes. So we take these cores in the marshes and um, date them with radiocarbon, and, we, you know, and then we can see that more salt-adapted marsh plants we're present then.
0: Okay, I want to ask you about the cores for just a second. So you okay. say we take cores. So what does that mean? Are you So I know that a core is basically, it's a, a segment of of earth, right, that you've taken, you've sort of taken a cannulated drill and just sort of jammed it down. Is that how you do it? Or t- tell us how yeah, you do a core. I
1: mean, it, they're kind of like these cylindrical tubes uh-huh. that you push down and uh, sort of suction the the sediments into them and, and pull it up. We go out in a, either a flat, like some kind of raft, or in some cases, um, an actual ship. You know, we've we've paid drilling, coring, drilling companies to do this for us. So you actually um, have
0: people on a ship drilling down below the bay, or below uh-huh. the water, <laughs> yeah. and then how deep do, does it go? How, how, how far down do you get?
1: Well, we have had, we took one series of cores that went, oh, like maybe 100 meters. So we actually went back about 120,000 years. Wow. Which, yeah, (laughs) so that went, and the goal there was to look at, uh, you know, because we have these ice ages, you know, the glacial, interglacial cycles. When was the last ice age in California? It ended about 18,000 years ago. Okay. Yeah. And then it lasted about 80,000 years. So, you know, or 90 or 100. So about 120,000 years ago, it was warm like it is today. It was an interglacial Mm -hmm. uh, when it was warmer. And so we wanted to kind of see what the bay was like back then because that period of time sea level was actually higher. The last interglacial was a little bit warmer than this interglacial, so we wanted to kind of see what what it was like, and mm-hmm. the bay was larger then. So the so. interglacials between glacial periods, and just to
0: say one more thing about the cores, if you've never seen a core, the idea is what you're doing is you're getting layers of earth and sediment from a long period back because you're drilling into the earth, and so you're getting what was on the surface of the planet millions of years ago or thousands of years ago depending on how far back you go so you basically get like a kind of uh, like a little tiny piece of all of these different layers
1: right right exactly yeah and you kind
0: of you you can kind of look at them and see from the bottom all the way to the top what was happening on the surface of the planet
1: exactly yeah you have a stratigraphy and you know with the older at the bottom and and you can date them with radiocarbon and other way methods
0: So what was it like when, in that interglacial, between glacial periods, what was the Bay Area like at that time? You said that sea levels were higher.
1: Was it warmer than it is now? It was supposedly a little warmer during the last interglacial, and sea level was about 20 feet higher. Wow. Okay, so So, is that
0: a state that we might reach again
1: if we keep Well, that's the concern, yeah. So that's why we were looking at that, because we wanted to just kind of see how high sea level was and you know it did go inland you know it covered parts of San Francisco and it gave us an idea of you know what might happen if we warm another would we be underwater degrees. right
0: now in, an in in that interglacial <laughs>
1: I'm right here. I'd have to look at a map. I'm not, I'm not sure if we would right <laughs> But we'd here. be close to the shore, probably. We'd be closer yeah. to the shore. Um, here in yeah. Oakland,
0: we'd be on the beach. So that I yeah. guess that's kind of nice. <laughs> so you've looked at these kind of extremes of of weather or fluctuations in weather. And there's also been periods of flooding in California, too, right? We've had these incredible droughts. We've also had ice ages. So when was right. the last giant flood in California, and what happened when during that flood
1: right yeah so the, so the other thing that people have been finding are that are these mega floods you know evidence for really really wet years that um, and and we actually had a historic event that most people aren't aware of in 1861 uh, 62 and so this you know 100 and what is that 160 whatever years ago for 43 days there was almost solid rain and it was atmospheric river storms a series of atmospheric river storms similar to what we've had this year i mean i started worrying in the midst of this like oh no is this going to be like another year like that but it Wait, what is, is there
0: out. a scientific definition of mega-flood? Like, is there a moment when a no. flood becomes a mega-flood? Oh,
1: no, I don't think so. I think it's just, I think it's just a kind of informal term meaning very, very rare, you know. It's just kind <laughs> very of... Very wet. <laughs> very wet and very unusual. I mean, there. so we found that they only occur about every 200 years.
0: And but, what, um, what
1: happened to California during that mega-flood oh. in the 1860s? So, yeah, in 1861, so you had 43 days of, you know, solid rain, very rapid runoff from the Sierras, you know, just filling the Central Valley. So the Sacramento, San Joaquin Rivers and their tributaries went into the Central Valley and uh, turned it into an inland sea about 10 feet deep. And so the telegraph poles, you know, there was the telegraph then, Mm -hmm. were submerged. And, you know, you could only get around by boat. Of course, Sacramento is right in the middle of that. And so, Sacramento, you know, this, the legislature had to move to San Francisco for six months. And people were, you see these pictures of rowboats or drawings of people going around in rowboats. But it destroyed something like seven out of every eight homes and most of the farms that were in the Central Valley, as well as something like 200,000 cattle were destroyed. Um, It it was more of a a ranchero society then. And there were also a lot of landslides. You know, when you get these big storms, you get like we did this year, you get landslides, heavy winds, you know, just an amazing amount of damage. And the state went bankrupt, you know, declared bankruptcy at the end of that. And so so
0: that's something that we could be seeing again soon because we're we're almost at that 200 year yeah, cycle. Yeah, I mean and
1: that's the problem is it's hard to like on av- or you know on average it's every 200 years or so, but it's kind of like earthquakes where you you can't predict exactly what year, but you know that you've got a general, you know, a frequency of about or a periodicity of about 200 years. So it is something that people should be aware of and the US Geological Survey has actually done some modeling where they they have a arc storm scenario, they call it, where they have modeled, well, okay, what if one of these events happened again today? How would that impact the state? And, you know, they show about 700 billion in damage. You know, it would be really a big, catastrophic event. So it's just something that people have to, I think people should be aware of, and we should have sort of preparation and plans in place just like we do with earthquakes i mean people are more aware of our earthquake history i think Mm
0: -hmm. and um you mentioned atmospheric river storms which i we've been hearing about a lot this year because of the um maybe not mega floods but like uh, proto mega floods that we've been having this year so can you tell us what is an atmospheric river what what's happening when when that happens
1: yeah, so that's, uh, I mean, that, again, that's like a really normal phenomenon that we have, but usually we might have five to nine of these per year, and they, but they, they provide 30 to 50% of our water resources. So they're actually really important for our water uh, supply. But the problem is like uh, 80% of our big floods are caused by these things. So what they are is corridors of water vapor that come up from the tropics, where you have a lot of evaporation, and so you have this warm water vapor that's sort of being carried up uh, with strong winds, about a mile above the surface, and then when they encounter the west coast, when they encounter mountain ranges like the Coast Ranges and the Sierra Nevada then that, that warm moist air mass rises and it cools and so you have condensation you get a ton, just a lot of rain that comes out very quickly and so usually they only last a couple of days but you know if you see one st- like like we saw this here you know you can have you know just one after another and you know that's that was the problem in 1861 was just they just continued you know instead of just having a few of them.
0: And is when we hear about global warming causing more enormous storms in California is that one of the kinds of storms that we're talking
1: about? Yeah yeah it definitely is. So there's the meteorologist who study who's like one of the experts in this has looked at climate models and he's Shown that under under warming in the future, you're going to see like maybe a 15% increase in the frequency of them, as well as they're going to be more chance of having a, a much larger one uh, as well. You know, so you're going to have both larger storms as well as more frequent storms, and the season that they occur over could extend as well. So I mean, like you know, more months of the year, they might be experienced. So just constant atmospheric disturbance? Yeah, I don't know if it's constant or just because on average it's going to be getting drier, but then I think sort of punctuating a drier climate, there's going to be these, we're going to have to prepare for both drier as well as potential floodings, so...
0: So there's this process which is causing these atmospheric rivers, like it's sort of a typical, it sounds like, process that can kind of become more frequent. Are there similar kinds of global processes that cause California's droughts too? Like is there a kind of a weather system that
1: causes these droughts to happen? Yeah, yeah. I mean, usually during, at least over the Pacific, you know, because a lot of, most of our weather is tied to the conditions over the Pacific. So uh, usually during La Nina conditions, you know, when it's uh, cooler water, you know, increasing the trade winds, you have cooler water in the eastern Pacific off the coast. Mm-hmm. Then in California and the southwest, you know, we tend to see dr- drier conditions. And actually, it's It's thought that during that medieval mega drought, it looks like, if you look at the coral reef evidence, it looks like the ocean was much more like a uh, La Nina type condition. Like there were more La Ninas Mm -hmm. more frequently during that time. So So. does that mean that the
0: surface of the ocean becomes cooler during that time, during the La La Nina? Yeah, the
1: surface waters are cooler in the eastern part of the Pacific because Uh you have the trade winds are blowing stronger Uh And so, when you blow that water from um, east to west, you have upwelling of colder water, which happens off the coast. That's why it's so cold. You know, if you go to Santa Cruz and try to go swimming, you know, you have, because you have upwelling, a coastal upwelling. Uh-huh. Yeah. So during during El Nino, it's kind of the opposite, where the trade winds relax, and all of that water from the other side of the Pacific, the warmer water, comes sloshing back toward our coast mm-hmm. because you don't have the winds pushing it away. So it's kind of a oscillation that we have. So you've been looking at climates
0: and environments throughout California, and I'm really curious about how that works, because aren't there a lot of different ecosystems in California? I mean, how do they interact, or do they interact, or is it really kind of silly to even talk about California as a unit, because, you know, the boundaries of a state don't necessarily obey the boundaries of an ecosystem?
1: Yeah, in fact, you know, when you think of our state, it's, in terms of water availability, the northern half is, is much wetter. And sometimes you can even kind of put the northern half with Oregon and Washington in terms of, like during a La Nina, you know, usually it's drier in southern Cal and in the southwest, and then northern Cal and up into the northwest, it's wetter. Mm -hmm. So there's a boundary here that, but that boundary can kind of fluctuate between the, the wetter and the drier, and so of course the ecosystems are all different between the northern Cal, and then we've got the Sierras that are high elevation, and they tend to trap a lot of you know a lot of the storms. Like I was saying, with the orographic precipitation, because a, a lot of precipitation happens in the Sierra Nevada, and so which is lucky for us because it kind of runs back down toward toward the coast. Lucky for and us
0: in Northern California or lucky for uh, us on the coast?
1: <laughs> oh, or just in general, that California, ha- you know, because like right. if you go over into Nevada and stuff, they're like in a rain shadow, you know, because we've just trapped all of the moisture from the Pacific and over on the other side of the Sierras, uh-huh. it's dry. So there's all these different, yeah, it's very complex in terms of trying to put it all together. So it's it's really really kind of
0: two states, in a sense, when it comes to the broader ecosystems. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I love deep time. I wanted to ask you about what California was like during the Cretaceous period which uh, for those of you who are not fans of deep time, the Cretaceous is when dinosaurs were were hanging around on the planet and things were really different. It was over 65 million years ago. And so still California was here. You know, we had uh, something like the North American part of the continent. So how different was the environment? How different was the planet back then?
1: yeah so the cretaceous so you know we're talking like 140 to 65 million years ago Mm -hmm. it was well on, on in general it was much warmer and in some ways we can look at that as you know what might happen if we continue to add co2 to the atmosphere because the co2 content was much higher then and the climate was maybe on average 10 degrees warmer but the poles were actually much warmer, so it, there was not as much difference between the tropics and the poles. You had a, less of a gradient, temperature gradient. So you know, you see like evidence for tropical species up toward the poles, the, the reptiles like dinosaurs and coral reefs and things like palm trees and things like that. And so yeah, it was definitely warmer and there was no ice on the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so no ice caps. No ice caps. And there's and
0: tropical and... animals in Antarctica, basically.
1: Right, right. Okay. And so the sea level was, because all that water filled the oceans, that sea level was much higher. And sea level was higher as well because when it's warmer, you hit thermal expansion. Mm-hmm. So that also caused sea level rise. And then you also had more volcanic, so seafloor spreading. So these undersea volcanoes that when you increase the rate of seafloor spreading, you these mountains get larger, and then they push the sea level even higher. Mm-hmm. So there's basically so,
0: mounds of lava under the ocean from all of these underwater volcanoes, and that's right. pushing the water up even more. Right, okay. right, because it was... Which yeah. sounds really cool from, like, a disaster movie perspective. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe not so great for humans. Um, yeah, well, yeah. we don't have to worry. I mean, I mean we weren't there. We, yeah, and we yeah. don't have
1: to worry about that part of it, at least. But we do have to worry about the part that we're artificially adding the CO2 to the atmosphere. I mean, back then, the CO2 was was high in the atmosphere because during higher volcanic activity, you're you're actually releasing more CO2. There's CO2 dissolved in the magma that's, that's actually released... And so, if you increase the rate of volcanic activity, then you get more CO2 going into the atmosphere and building up. So the volcanoes
0: were like creating an industrial revolution type event, right? Right. (laughs) In in a natural way. Right. Right. Um,
1: And then that's what caused it to be um, much warmer. And
0: so, what would happen to California if those kind of conditions came back today? Like, if we actually were at that level of warmth, would most of the state be just underwater, or
1: I don't. I mean, I mean that that deck I mean, back then, I think sea level was maybe 250 meters higher or something. So it would be. You so we know, would definitely be the underwater. Central Valley here. would be underwater. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You know, the Sierra Nevada would be maybe sticking up above for sure Mm -hmm. but yeah it would be wouldn't be good you know and then you'd have a lot of tropical I mean the vegetation would change dramatically as well I mean everything would look a lot different Mm -hmm. so we would
0: basically have a tropical environment here in California exactly Um, well that's something to look forward to sort of (laughs) yeah but I don't yeah I don't think that but nobody's concerned that that's I don't think it's it's going to be that extreme All right, so we have time to take some questions from the audience if you guys want to ask anything about climate change. The question was basically, uh, to sum up a a very nuanced question, what does Professor Ingram see in terms of water availability in the long term based on what she's seen historically happening in the state? I think that's fair.
1: Well, I mean, during that medieval drought, They've done hydrologic models of, you know, they've seen how much, you know, the lakes dried up. And so they could estimate how much water was going in and evaporating. And they think that it was about 40% drier during that time. So that seems to be like a worst case. In terms of natural variability, that might be the worst case scenario. But the problem is that if we continue to have warming and it continues to dry... Then they've done climate models showing that potentially in like 25 or maybe 30 years, we could reach the medieval level of drought or of dryness. And then if it continues to warm, we're just going to continue to get drier and drier. So, you know, the problem would be, you know, it could get worse than what we saw during medieval if we're, if we continue that. So how far north does he have to move to escape? Yeah, because, well, (laughs) the other side of that is that it's under warming. You'll actually have, uh, it'll get wetter in some places. So, I mean, they're predicting the drier places will get drier, and then the wetter places are supposed to get wetter. So I think just like, you know, Oregon and on up, it's supposed to get um, wetter. So, (laughs) I mean, maybe they'll just start, you know, piping water or, you know, transporting water from there. I don't know. But groundwater, we haven't, we don't, I don't know over the long term. I'm assuming that groundwater naturally didn't vary. And it's just humans that are, you know, we're pumping it out and we've, we're depleting it at a pretty rapid rate. And so, you know, that's, that's also kind of concerning because that's kind of like the water in the bank that we should be trying to keep there for the future. And, I think they're going to start regulating it, but from what I understand, they—they are supposed to. They haven't actually started regulating or monitoring it yet, but I think they're going to. But in the meantime, I think everybody's—all the farmers, you know, the corporate farmers—are really pumping that out pretty rapidly, and that takes a long time to regenerate. I mean, that uh, took hundreds to thousands of years to build up that those underground aquifers. So that's, that's not a good situation.
0: How can you talk just very briefly about the accuracy and precision of radiocarbon uh, over the sort of time frames that it's useful? And then secondly is as we get more into a warmer environment, you have a lot less experience or, or high quality data about, uh, how these oscillation mechanisms work, and so on. And mm. so, could you talk about the confidence in the models when we start kind of going off of the historical record, or is that really the problem?
1: Right. Yeah. So the radiocarbon, it only go. You can only date things back to about fifty thousand years, and because of the half life of radiocarbon, it's a little like five and a half thousand years, and then. In the last thousand years, during some periods of time, it's not that precise. I mean, it's you know it might be plus or minus uh, 50 years or something like that or 100 years. So you know that is an issue when you try to compare. You know we're trying to compare all of these records. Like we have San Francisco Bay, we have the Sierras and lakes and. The really, the top, the, the most reliable records come from like the tree rings because they're annual, you know, they're annual so you can, it's an absolute sort of dating method. And then there's uh, some sediments that are called varved so that you can literally count the, count the layers. Varved the means you have annual sediment layers that you can count. So, you know, th- this is something, we, you know, that we spend a lot of time doing is just trying to re- refine our dating so that we're really getting it, we're comparing all these records accurately. In terms of the models, I'm not really a climate modeler, but I, I'm sure that all the models have also have their, uh, they, you know, a lot of assumptions go into the models and You know, what they do is they run a whole bunch of different models and then they plot them all up and they try to see, you know, how much, how different all the results are. And sometimes there's a really robust result and, for example, I think that the atmospheric river getting stronger in the future is pretty robust and also that it's going to get drier on average. So I think those two, but, you know, there might be some uncertainty about how much drier, or, you know, the details of it. But I think we're already seeing drying and I think we have to prepare for it. I think, I guess the main point to me is that we should prepare for it anyway because even if they're a little off, you know, it's better to prepare for something than to just say, oh, well, they don't know that, you know, they might be wrong, so don't worry about it because then you're really, you know, you're taking a chance and if they're right, then you're kind of, so.
0: As a paleoclimatologist, I'm Um, curious what your favorite period from California's paleo history was and could you tell us a little bit about what it was like and what kind of plants and animals existed then?
1: Oh, man, because I'm not, okay, so I should say I'm not a um, paleontologist, <laughs> so I, I actually study the geochemistry of the, and, and so basically, I, after the paleontologist is done looking at all these little shells from these cores, then I take them those shells, and I crush them up, and I dissolve them in acid, and, you know... <laughs> analyze their isotopes the oxygen and carbon isotopes so it's like they really hate me like because I work with paleontologists and you know they're it's so hmm so what is
0: your favorite period to dissolve an acid
1: (laughs) (laughs) oh let's see well there was the something called the neoglaciation that occurred so before the uh, medieval warm period we kind of have these big Fluctuations in warm and, and cold. And so, you know, during, like, there was a, so there was the medieval warm period, and then after that was the little ice age. But before the medieval warm period, there was something called the neoglaciation, when it was uh, a lot wetter, it was colder and wetter in California, and a lot of the glaciers expanded. So, um, and that's when I guess it was really a time when a lot of the shell mounds, so uh, these, we had um, native populations that lived around San Francisco Bay, and they started building these big mounds that are maybe 10 meters high and uh, sort of oblong shaped. And they're literally built out of, they're stratified deposits built out of shells taken from the bay. And it's thought that they lived on these mounds, and there's burials in the mounds. You know, Emeryville Shell Mound was one of them, one of the biggest ones. But so it's just really intriguing to me that during that period of time you had so many human you know populations that kind of because the bay was just getting established after the ice age the sea level had risen enough that you had that San Francisco Bay was the same you know grew to its present size so I think that was probably so when the bay was new yeah yeah
0: obviously there are fluctuations but I thought Uh. I had. Read that the last three years have seen higher temperatures than mm. in any recent, any kind of a recent past.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the last several years have been, other than, well, warmer and drier, except this year was wetter. But, yeah, so we've definitely seen, even since 2000, you know, the last 15 or 20, you know, 20 years have been really getting a lot warmer in California but actually since 1980s it's we've had this you know pretty steady warming in California that that really you know it's a trend that's not looking like part of a cycle it's just um, You
0: mentioned yeah. California but I thought this yeah. was Frankly,
1: worldwide. Oh, it's definitely worldwide. But California, we actually have in the West our own temperature records. And we and in California in in the West we're actually seeing greater warming than the, the global average. You know, because this warming is not even throughout the, the globe. And so some places are warming quick more quickly than others. And our area is one of those that's warming more quickly than the global average. I wonder if you could comment in our new political era i know that the, there's the march for science i believe is coming up soon oh, yeah and I'm, I'm, I'm wondering go to that. among your <laughs> among your colleagues at uc berkeley what kind of level of engagement is there in being prepared to speak out politically while still protecting your scientific integrity Yeah, I think definitely amongst the people that I know that do the climate research, you know, there's, well, I know that there's been some letters written, you know, they've written letters expressing concern about, you know, cutting funding for various agencies and regulations that they're going to be relaxing and things like that. So I think there is a little more than I would have, that I've seen, you know, ever before that um, in terms of... People getting involved in that way. Other than that, I, I, you know, I don't know. I think you know maybe individuals are doing different things, but I think there's going to be more. I mean, I think that there's there's going to be this march on April. I think it's April 29th in Washington. It's like a climate march. Well, there's one on the 22nd and one on the 29th for for climate change. Yeah, I just I think. I hope you know, that, and I, I definitely am trying to figure out ways other than donating to everything I can you know, and signing every petition that comes. You know. <laughs> but you know, it's trying to figure out how to, you know. I think just trying to get our research out there and try to educate people is one way, but I'm not sure how else. Do you have any suggestions that I can <laughs> bring back to?
0: <laughs> My question is, I've read a few times that California from roughly 1880 to 1980 was an unusually wet period and
1: mm-hmm. our current policies and habits regarding water reflect a unusually wet period in California. Right. Is that statement about that 100 years being wetter than average consistent with your uh, research and experience? Yeah. yeah, definitely. And so and the tree rings also bear that out. So If you're just looking over the last, even the last thousand years, that the 20th century, or starting in the late 1800s, was maybe 15% wetter. And so, you know, that's what I was kind of thinking about in terms of, you know, it seems like we might be naturally going back into a, a slightly drier cycle anyway. And, you know, and then, of course, superimposed on that, we're putting more CO2 and making it artificially dry, you know, human-caused drying on top of that. But that was when all of our, you know, the 1940s and so on in terms of building all our reservoirs and aqueducts and, and all that kind of stuff was, you know, was based on a much wetter period of time. And so we thought we had a lot more water than, you know, we kind of set up our whole Um, water system based on a a wetter period of time. That's a really good point, yeah. Just your thoughts further
0: around the relationship between global temperatures getting higher and California that being more significant. It's very interesting and I'm just curious how that, if that relates to the Bay Area, which has kind of a niche temperature situation comparatively to much of the rest of California that's wetter and colder or drier. Um, and then also your thoughts around as that does occur, as temperatures do rise, what species are anticipated to adapt and to not adapt, and whether or not it will be more of the native species that will adapt, or if actually like, introduced or invasive species might actually be more successful in the, in the new situation.
1: Well on the last point, so I'm not a biologist, <laughs> I mean I do the geochemistry, look at sediments, sediment cores and geochemistry, but the species that are living at, kind of at the boundary of, of where they can survive, you know, as it gets warmer, they're not going to have anywhere to go. And, you know, and also things like the, marsh, the marshes, as sea level rises, there's not anywhere for the marshes to kind of migrate inland. So I think uh, because people are, you know, because there's cities and, and housing and stuff. So I think the fact that humans have, we're kind of, we've built cities and things in the way of, that's going to kind of impinge on the ability of these organisms to kind of shift as they naturally would with, you know, with climate change. You know, because we have had climate change. Oh, and then, then the other problem is the, the rate of climate change is a lot faster now. So, you know, there have been warmer and cooling periods in the past, but the rate that we're adding CO2 and the rate that we're warming the planet is really fast and it makes it a lot harder for these ecosystems to kind of adapt and to shift, you know, migrate to higher latitudes or whatever. So, I mean, I'm not an expert on that, I'm just saying that's what I've heard. I mean, I think along the coast, because we have, there's coastal fog, so that there's some question about what's gonna happen with the fog. And, uh, you know, because I kind of think that that kind of controls some of our climate here. One thing they I think they're concerned about is if we have a decrease in fog, then it's gonna affect things like, say, the coast redwoods that rely on fog drip and, Things like that. So there's just different things that might be affected by warming that you wouldn't have thought of, like something like that. So I think that the people are, there's um, biologists and people that are researching that. But I have seen, if you, could, you could Google that in terms of, there, they've done studies on the coast redwoods and what are what's predicted for fog, for instance. But yeah.
0: The science is pretty sound on it, and it has been for a while. It's more of an issue of getting that science to people. Um, and like I said, right. getting the research out there. Uh, I was wondering if you had any suggestions of resources that people could go to to um, help support their own climate change discussions and uh, get the word out a little bit more.
1: Yeah, I actually heard of one, I started getting emails from Al Gore has an organization that he started and I can't remember, it's Climate Action or something like that. Or cl- what is it, Climate, climate. Reality? project or something and they literally do trainings and they might even have online resources because they talk about how when you talk to different people you have to kind of consider that person's culture or their, you know, there's just a lot of different considerations and ways of presenting the ideas of climate change that you might not have thought of, I guess. and. So that's one, that's one that I've seen.
0: Are there any at Berkeley in particular that you or your colleagues have online? There's a
1: class at Berkeley that teaches called uh, Communicating Climate Science. And it meets once a week in our department, Earth and Planetary Science. And they literally go over, first of all, the science of climate science, but then ways of communicating that or even like how would you teach you know a middle school like this this concept you know because there's a lot of different basic concepts with it that are that you so um, they I think they have a website it's so it's called communicating climate science okay yeah also you you. can buy Lynn's book Um, (laughs) this
0: is an excellent source of information Um, so uh, that's it for the QA thanks very much